Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by two philosophers who have spent years working on translating the sovereignty of good into German and Dutch, respectively, and one of whom is now taking on the task of translating The Fire in the Sun, Why Plato Banished the Artists. Translations of Murdoch's philosophical works are rather patchy, I think, so it's great to hear that work is continuing to promote her work outside of the English language, and it's a pleasure to have Eva and Marietta with me today. So I have, firstly, Eva Maria Deringa. Hello, Eva. Hi, Miles. Thanks so much for coming on. Eva's a researcher at the University of Tübingen in Germany, where she currently leads a funded research project on suffering and its role in virtue ethics. Her work is very much influenced by the writings of Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch and Philippa Foote. She's the author of Evaluating Emotions, which came out with Palgrave in 2014, as well as various articles on emotions and ethics, as well, of course, um, as the German translation of The Sovereignty of Good, which came out this past July with Surkamp, which, of course, is going to be the main focus of conversation today. And you can find a link to buy her translation of The Sovereignty of Good in the podcast description box below. Also joining me is Marietta Willemsen. Hello, Marietta. Hello, Miles. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Marietta is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Amsterdam University College, where she teaches courses in Ethics and the History of Philosophy, uh, with a main focus on Arthur Schopenhauer, Simone Weil and Iris Murdoch. So you can see that there's a lot of um, connections between the, my two guests that I've got on today. Together with Hannah Altorf, um, and Hannah um, has been on the podcast before, and she's also a member of my team here at Chichester, uh, she translated Murdoch's The Sovereignty of Good into Dutch, uh, which came out with Boom in 2003. Her most recent publications look into connections between Schopenhauer and Murdoch and Vey and Murdoch. And together with Hannah, she's currently working on a translation of Iris Murdoch's 1977 book, um, The Fire and the Sun, Why Plato Banished the Artists. So... Wonderful to have you both, as I said. Um, Marietta, I think you've been working on Murdoch a little bit longer than Eva. So um, let's start with you, I think, um, and bring you into the conversation first. Um, but a question for both of you, really. How did you first come to Murdoch's work? And was there, uh, when you first kind of um, were engaging with Murdoch's work, uh, was there already material translated into your native language or was it quite difficult to find? Yeah, thanks for asking, Miles. It's so interesting to think back of how it started, because um, uh, it started with her novels. I uh, started reading her novels in the 80s. Um, it was, uh, the first novel I read was The Bell. Not in, I, I, didn't, I never read novels in, uh, in Murdoch's novels in translation, okay. although they are there. And um, yeah, I checked this morning. You can you can still order them, but it's often secondhand. So it, it is more difficult to uh, to get new translations now from novels. Um, but I think the bell is still one that you can easily buy in a shop in um, in, in Dutch. Mm -hmm. But okay, it started with um, novel reading, and I, I read all her novels, and I was super fond of them. I found them amazing, and I'm also still sort of grateful that at the time. Murdoch was still publishing novels, so I was waiting for the next one <laughs> and, and then read the novel. And at the time, I didn't know that she was also doing philosophical work. I, I only found out about that somewhat later. And then I started to work on her philosophy after finishing my uh, thesis on Nietzsche. And at the time, I got a bit, I don't know, annoyed by Nietzsche. And really needed something else. And, okay, yeah. And, yeah. 
one, and it's interesting to think back of that because it was that at some point I thought Schopenhauer is far more interesting than Nietzsche, and especially because of his uh, seeing compassion as a cornerstone of his ethics, which was exactly the thing Nietzsche started to discuss, uh, to disgust at some point. <laughs> and well, a very long story. I won't fatigue you with, with all the details, but um, I, I, I then found out about Murdoch's philosophical work, also could see connection there and cent centrality of compassion. And I was uh, sort of exactly right. And that was uh, later in the 90s that I started working on her um, as a philosopher. And mm -hmm. that's also when I met uh, Hannah Altorf. And um, we found out yesterday that we know each other now. <laughs> we have known each other for 25 years. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it started with her novels. And when you first came to Murdoch's philosophy, it was, again, there was nothing, mm. trans I presume there was nothing translated into Dutch at that point. In, in fact, it was at some point in the 80s that Murdoch visited Amsterdam yeah. in, um, in October, October 86. And um, that was, it will be interesting for Eva to, to hear exactly when I was studying in Tübingen. Oh. <laughs> so I missed the great, missed the great opportunity to, uh, to meet Argus Murdoch. I never, I never met her. And um, she then lectured in Groningen in the north on mm -hmm. uh, the ontological proof. And that lecture was being translated in Dutch by uh, one of the Dutch um, journals, uh, uh, daily journals, a kind of guardian uh, in the Netherlands was publishing her translation of that, the translation of that lecture. And I think that was more or less the only thing available uh, qua philosophy in Dutch at the time. Right, okay. And Ava, was it the same for you um, coming to Murdoch? Did you come through the novels first or was, was it kind of di directly into the philosophy? Well, it was more the philosophy, really. When I did my PhD, I um, read a lot of John McDowell and I struggled a lot with John McDowell. Uh, and I, I think some people then mentioned that Murdoch was there in the background somewhere, but I never read her then. Yeah. And then uh, the years went on and I read at some point The Sea, The Sea, and I I found it fascinating, but I was also a bit, it was hard work, I found, just because Charles Araby is so horrible, right? And to just stick to, the, <laughs> yep. stick to the story and just go through with it. It's just, oh, yeah, it was tough. So that didn't really make me want to immediately read more, um, I have to admit. And then it was, I'm good friends with Rachel Wiseman, uh, who, of course, wrote uh, Metaphysical Animals with Glenn mm. Poole. And she told me about this project when she was writing uh, about the four women. And then she came over to Tübingen and to give a talk about the four women. And then it was that evening in the pub. So it's in, I'm just telling the story because it kind of shows how Murdoch is really <laughs> a philosophy to live by, because it was really a sort of private situation. We were in the pub and talking about... Um, a common acquaintance and I was saying how I was really struggling to to see that person fairly right mm. and to in an unbiased way and I felt like whatever that person did or said I would always kind of interpret it in a certain negative light and I was really I didn't like that and I wanted to change and I didn't know how to do it and then Rachel said to me well you need Murdoch and that was really you know, what made me read Murdoch. I bought The Sovereignty of Good and somewhat later I actually read it and that really, uh, that had such an impact on me. I mean, that really changed my 
philosophical outlook uh, completely. And I felt like suddenly I understood what McDowell was probably on about all these years earlier when I'd read McDowell, but it never kind of never got to me. Yeah. And then reading and then reading Murdoch was like, okay, this is this is incredible. But also like incredible with, you know, the kind of private affairs, you know, helping you to yeah, to to work on yourself and trying to become a better person. So it's yeah, that kind of practical application of the uh, of her work. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. And was there anything translating to German at that point in time that well, you were the, picking the, up? The well? novels, I think, uh, probably not all of them, but a lot of them had been tra- translated uh, when they came out. And I think there have been some reissues or like even new translations. Uh, in A lot of the novels came out again in 2017, I saw, and that, they were probably newly translated then. I haven't read any of them. And that seemed to be, they seem to be out of print already as well. So it's the same really with the German translations of the novels that you get most of them only secondhand. Right. Yeah. And none of her philosophical work, as far as I'm aware, had ever been. Oh, trans- right. That was, that was what I was going to come to, actually. Yeah. I wonder whether there was any any short pieces that have been translated. But really, you were the, you're the trailblazer then. I, I both of you so. are, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is great. So. Marietta, obviously, uh, when you and uh, you and Hannah got together twenty five years ago, um, was that over a, a shared love of, of and connection with Murdoch's work, and was that something that then inspired you to take on the challenge of translating the Sovereignty of Good? Yeah, well, um, when we met, that was actually it was at the Boston World Conference in nineteen ninety eight. There's a nice anecdote there, and because at some point there was a panel at this World Conference and. Both my, uh, Hannah and I were there in the same row, and we already had a bit of a chat. And in that panel, was uh, Mary Mitchley was there, mm. um, and also Quine and uh, Carl Otto Apel. Uh, it was uh, yeah, it was sort of fun. <laughs> and at some point, Mary Mitchley, uh, they, they talked about Heidegger at some point, and then Mary Mitchley got really angry and shouted, <laughs> "I think he's evil." <laughs> And that made, <laughs> and everyone was listening very politely, but both Hannah and I had to really laugh out loud because we, we thought it was so funny <laughs> and sort of to the point. <laughs> and I think that's how it started. And there's something in, in our sort of shared sense of humor that helped us to work on Iris Murdoch. At, at a later point, I was working on, on Murdoch and, and we got together um, but yeah, I'm just mentioning this because, of course, it's now also super interesting given all the attention for 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 the four um, thinkers, Mitri um, in, included, that there was sort of a start, a sense of humor and um, the, the the openness and open mind of Mitri that sort of brought us together. But it was then two years later that we really worked, started work on the translation, or even a bit later. We worked, we, we worked on it for three years <laughs> on the sovereignty of good. Um, now I forgot your question, Miles. I was just I was, I was wondering what kind of inspired you to take, what was it that inspired you to take on sovereignty of goods out of Murdoch's, yeah. Murdoch's works, I suppose. Yeah. And, and yeah, a little bit about yeah. the process of doing it in as, as, a, as a pair yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, well, we, we, we both thought it was a, an important text and also a difficult text. There, um, a dense text, also references to, to, uh, to say the analytical tradition, to certain thinkers, 
for example, Hampshire that we didn't know very well. And we thought, okay, let's look into it carefully. And we thought it would, the best way to look at things carefully, and I'm very convinced of this, is to do it sort of word by word, maybe read it first and then go word by word and really have a conversation about it, which is what we did and which is why it took us years to uh, complete mm. the translation. And yeah, there was something in also the, 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 the voice of Murdoch, which is one of the more important things that we had to learn. So it was a learning curve in, in the, to, to, uh, to do the translation. Um, so through conversations about the content, about the, say, the, um, the context of analytic uh, philosophy being open to more continental approaches, which is what we both thought was, was uh, important. Word by word, talking about it, uh, going back and forth. Um, Hannah, especially um, the one who was more literal in her translation, me being a bit more free, <laughs> and then talking about how shall we go about. And I, I myself have a background in, in Dutch linguistics and literature, and Hannah knows a lot about the, say the, the things like um, differences between middle class, upper middle class, and how that plays in, how that is important in translating the book. For example, in this very famous uh, mother and daughter example in the idea of perfection, mm. where we thought, where, where Hannah would also be the one to say, well, it's a bit snobbish and you need to, we need to find the vocabulary to translate this snobbishness <laughs> and to find a voice. Uh, yeah, so well, it was a wonderful process and, and it's, um, we, 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 we kept afterwards getting back to it, which is also why we thought, let's go for the fire and the sun to do this kind of really in-depth process again. Yeah, of course. I mean, just just listening to, to you talk about that and the, the kind of the intricacy of doing that. And I think working, you know, working as, as a pair must give you a, a really sort of come up with kind of diff, different approaches, but also different different ways of thinking. And I love that that notion about thinking about the, um, the, the class based nature of the language. I mean, it's not something that I'd really given any consideration to. But I imagine that's something when you get into the kind of the line by line, word by word process. It's something that you 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 must pick up, and also you know whether that kind of moves across different European cultures and different European traditions. Eva, was that something that you came up came up against as well when you were kind of thinking about how to approach the the material and the translation? Yeah, I mean, I do remember uh, the M and D uh, adjectives in particular, first and familiar, and so on. And you have to, I mean, it's yeah, you have to get the tone and the voice right. And it is kind of a voice of, I guess, the 1960s, or maybe even the mother then would be somebody from the maybe 1940s or so who would be speaking about D. And um, so I had, but I had some fun with this. I enjoyed it. And I was also very lucky to have a, a student assistant, uh, Roman Schelling, who um, who helped me load. So I also had this conversation going on with somebody. Okay. Yeah. Who, yeah. And that was absolutely helpful. We didn't really do it word by word, I would say, so much. Maybe we should have done this more. But he was maybe also more on the literal side of things. And I was, uh, I tended to be a bit more um, liberal or free in my translations. And he was a very good checker, you know, that I wouldn't go too 
sure. too far away from uh, from the original. But that was definitely, yeah, one. Um, but also her voice, she has such a particular voice, right, which is so... Um, very easy going, very sharp at the same time, very sort of elegant. It's a very particular tone you want to catch and to really get that same voice going in, in German or in another language. That was a bit tricky. And I think this is something that does call for, uh, I guess, liberality or taking some freedoms here and there, you know, with uh, with the wording and with the structure of the sentence. and. Sure. Uh, so I'd never done this before, so I was <laughs> trying my best. But I think one of the reviews did say it was an elegant book. So I thought, okay, maybe maybe I did something right if they <laughs> think no, it's I elegant. I know you've had some some great reviews, and also you've, you've, it's it's sold very well. And I'd love to come onto that a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. You've kind of preempted my next question. Actually, I was going to ask about whether either of you had translated any other works like this before. I mean, clearly, if you're working with philosophers outside of your native language, there's gonna, you're going to sort of internally kind of process and think about translation. But that kind of the formality of actually producing work and then mm -hmm. I don't know whether you had a public. Did you have publishers in mind that you're going to go to? I know those, that's kind of two questions in one. But um... yeah, <laughs> I, I, I had uh, I did approach actually I did approach Suakamp, um after I'd given a seminar on the sovereignty of good. And that's when I discovered that I had never been a German translation of it. And I just wrote to them and said, look, this is a classic. It's a wonderful book. We need it in German for seminars, for students, you know, mm. who, you know, to make it accessible. Uh, and then at first, I just got a very standardized email to say, yeah, we'll pass it on to the department, the appropriate department. And about half a year later, and I think the thought had been growing in me a bit that actually I don't just want anyone to do it. Maybe I want to do it myself. But I did then write again half a year later to them in particular saying, look, I would do it, you know, if if you took it on. And then they said, OK, yeah, great. Let's do it. So I had I had the publisher before I started out. Right. OK. Which was helpful because they then also said, OK, we'll, we'll take care of the rights um, and all that. And they also gave me a sort of style sheet and guidelines, which was helpful. And one thing that's maybe particular in German, I'm not sure uh, what it's like in Dutch, but one particular challenge was a kind of gender neutral or in German we say gender just, gender gerecht. Sprache, language. Mm -hmm. So that's that was super, super hard. That is a big political topic at the moment, you know, to have gender neutral language. Sure. Uh, and obviously, I was taking great liberties there with the text because in Murdoch, you know, the examples are mostly male whenever she uses a pronoun, at least, right? It tends to be he and him. Um, and so there, the publisher was of help because they told me, well, well, that weren't of great help because they said, you decide, do whatever you want. Uh, but if you do want to have a gender neutral language, do it in this particular way, which is what I did. But I found that really, really hard and tricky because you have to really mess and meddle with the language a bit. Sure, and you want to be... And you want to be true to, to Murdoch's kind exactly. of right, yeah, the kind of the inspiration and drive behind the original production material. Um Marietta, I know that yours came out uh, well, it's actually 20th anniversary, isn't it, this year of the, the publication of, of your translation. So maybe you're working in a different kind of cultural kind of environment. True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, um 
Um, as to gender, that was indeed different at the time. We are, we of course, facing it now that we're translating, trying to translate fire in the sun. And we even had a conversation about how to translate the word slave, because at some point in the fire in the sun, it's about the the, the geometrical proof offered by um, the slave in Meno, in the Meno, in Plato's Meno. And in the Dutch situation now, it it's well, it's. Um, it's the word slave is in certain circles no longer being used and there are good reasons for that you're being made a slave you're not a slave and then you think of yeah but Murdoch wrote slave how shall we go about probably we will solve it through a longer footnote <laughs> explaining uh, certain translation decisions but indeed at the time uh, in, in 2003 there was there was a different context and we I think we hardly talked about uh, gendered mm -hmm. pronouns, um, but we would have to now if we if we did the same thing now. And as to um, translation background, your your other question, Miles, um, I think both Hannah and I profited from the fact that we took uh, Greek and Latin in high school. So there's this sort of deep background in translating, translating. We never took... Uh, it, it was the first time we translated a, a book or a longer text in, in Dutch, but we both, I think, have this um, sensitivity from Greek and Latin translations where you have to also think about how literal can we be, how much freedom can we allow ourselves. And then finally, uh, as to the publisher, that was interesting because um, Bohm, uh, the publisher, there was a, a person there at the time um, and she was a philosopher and um, and she published my uh, PhD thesis. And then later on asked, what are you working on now? That was, was a very helpful question. And then it was sort of her decision to translate and to, to publish the translation. And she said that it, yeah, it will only cost us money <laughs> because people who are interested in Murdoch will probably want to want to read it in um, in English. But she thought it was such a sympathetic project that she uh, made it work in in a very very nice uh, in a very nice way. Excellent. Um, it, it it's great that it that it worked out, and it'd be good to talk a little bit later on in the podcast about the kind of the uh, the reception of the of the translation and um, and. Uh, where it, what it kind of led to in, in terms of kind of Murdoch's reception in, in, in Holland. Um, what did you find most challenging about the process? The question for both of you, I guess. I I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm thinking here about the technicalities, uh, maybe technical terms. I know we talked a little bit about the language and about class and about um, gendered pronouns and so on. But was there was it also about, um, as there is with, with any project, just the kind of the, the, the process and the graft of doing it, just going back day after day, and reading and rereading and trying to get your mind into that kind of headspace. Um, yeah, I, I think I did one run first where I would just really go through one of the essays and really just write it down. Uh, so I would have like say four pages per day or so that I would do okay. uh, and then do one essay, uh, then discuss it at length. Uh, with my assistant and then I would go over it again uh, two or three times or so and my my editor was really helpful as well actually with that um, and as to particular difficulties I mean there are loads and loads of terms that are very tricky when Marietta was talking about the slave I was thinking of the peasant that actually Hannah had warned me about mm -hmm. at the start you know the virtuous peasant and yeah. 
Uh, and I talked actually to Marietta about the virtuous peasant just uh, before my deadline. And I really liked her Dutch translation, which is very close, I think, to German as well with the Landarbeiter, uh, because peasant, again, is a word that is difficult to use, like the German, I don't know what it's like in English, but in German, Bauer is, um, you know, uh, there was a time, maybe not so much anymore, where it was used as a sort of insult to some people, you know, uneducated or, you know, non-thinking people, and okay. but also if you don't use it as an insult, it can mean somebody, uh, a farmer who owns lots of land, which probably wasn't what Murdoch meant, you know, with a virtuous peasant. So that was that was very tricky to get to get that right. And the virtuous part as well, because my feeling was for the virtuous peasant, she just wants to give a sort of everyday example of somebody who who is a good person, but not very uh, maybe philosophically minded, you know, hasn't thought long and hard about these things, but we still find you know, the truly virtuous person around. Um, so, and in German, Tugendhaft for virtuous is hardly ever used, very old fashioned. And I thought, you know, wouldn't get this across that we find these truly good people all around. Um, so I took some liberties there as well and went for good hearted, like good herzig. Um, so we, there are lots and lots of examples like this. Maybe maybe I mentioned one other or two, maybe two others. Um, and one, of course, is attention, which is so central and so difficult. Um, because in German, there is, ah, I was struggling with that. Uh, I did in the end go for Aufmerksamkeit, which is very much like focus, like concentrated mm -hmm. focus. Um, which, of course, loses some of these sort of patient, waiting, attending attitude that you have in, in attention, right? The, uh, it's, it's a bit colder, I find, and cooler. Uh, but, and I was thinking more about something at first, like zuwendung, which is a turning towards somebody, and which also means the posture you even have of when you turn towards somebody, which I think we find in Simone Weil, you know, where Murdoch took her attention from. Sure. Uh, so I was going back and forth on that. And maybe this is also a good place to mention Justin Brokes, who's written a commentary on the sovereignty of good, which is hopefully coming out before too long. And he sent me a manuscript of that commentary, which was so incredibly helpful. And he was the one who finally convinced me to go with the more kind of cool Aufmerksamkeit in German because he says look Murdoch uses it as a kind of technical term as well and she kind of adds the attributes of just and loving to it you know to specify it so maybe maybe do that too so Justin was super helpful as well and maybe one more difficulty that I had was with good and goodness because in the 70 of good she uses so many different versions of good, sometimes with a capital G, sometimes with a small g, sometimes in quotation marks, sometimes without, sometimes with an article, sometimes without, and then goodness as well. And it's like, ooh, it, is she using good as a technical term? Should I be careful to translate it really in the same way throughout? Or can I take some liberties, some freedoms here? I, that was really, really tricky as well. And I... I didn't go with a kind of unified approach. I didn't translate it as a technical term and used always the same one in German as well. Uh, and I tried to add footnotes, but the publisher didn't want to have too many footnotes, so quite a few got lost, but I hope not too much got lost in translation. Yeah. 
it's from from listening to you it also sounds like it, it was really useful to be able to draw on kind of the the support that's out there in the Murdoch community as well you've mentioned Justin's work yeah. and um yeah hopefully his commentary on Sovereignty is going to be coming out in the, in, in the next year or so which we're all looking forward to um but also that the, the conversations that you had with Mariette and, and with Hannah about um about their translation and the, the kind of experiences that they had it's very very helpful and also with yeah. Sylvia uh, and uh, Caprioglio Panitza and with Mark Hopwood I talked I mean maybe maybe one final example if I may yeah please <laughs> I found that I found just later on really tricky was the individual you know and she says love is knowledge of the individual and then at first because in German you can say individuum which means a person or you can say individuelles which means individual properties like various stuff right yeah uh, and in English, it's just the one word. And surely she kind of means both. She does mean possibly a person, but she also means just individual properties, individual things you make out. So so these were decisions I had to make and that were really, really hard and that you only start thinking about when you when you translate the work, right? I never had thought of this or stopped there when I read the English, but then when you have to bring it into your own language and you see the ambiguities, it's like, oof. Yeah. Yeah. How, do you, how do you cope with that when the person that wrote it is dead and you can't yeah. kind of cast them? Exactly. <laughs> right, that, what, what exactly did you mean when you used that word or that phrase? That yeah. Phrase? yeah. Um, Marietta, it was um, obviously quite some time ago that you started, but obviously it's you were yeah. uh, one of the trailblazers for, for doing this, um, this, this sort of uh, Murdoch's work in translation. Did you find it more difficult because there wasn't that kind of um, that, that network to draw on and also that you were having to, again, work with these kind of technical challenges that, um, that Ava's been talking yeah. about. Yeah, it's 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 so relatable, Ava, the, the, the examples you are giving. Um, so we also had those long conversations. If, I'm, if I may add a couple of examples, because so it's inspiring please. to hear it, thinking back of the time that we were working on it. Um, yeah, indeed, with uh, attention, we also had a conversation about how to translate this because indeed the, the whole um, connotation of waiting gets lost if you, yeah, you have to work with it. There's no such word, word in, in, in Dutch. Well, there is one, but then it's mean, it, means, well, it means something else. So we uh, went for uh, aandacht, which, which is um, a kind of thinking of in a very concentrated way. It would be the obvious translation, but still a lot got lost mm -hmm. in, in translation there. And... Um, and also, um, well, that might that's something I should really mention. We decided at the time, also in conversation with the publisher, to not go for the sovereignty of good as the title of the whole book, <laughs> which now seems like a maybe strange decision. Um, we went for On God and Good, mm. because not knowing that Murdoch was, um, especially as to her philosophical work, not an, a well-known name in the in the Dutch context, and sovereignty not being a sort of daily word, we thought, okay, let's go for on God and good. And also the publisher thought, well, that would be better to do. It makes the more accessible and attractive over God and het goede. And we also thought, and I still think it, that was also in line with what's going on in uh, in the book, so there was also a decision to go for the title of one of the other uh, essays. And another thing that um, may be nice to mention and that gave us a good laugh is to 
um, the, the phrase, I don't know if you remember that one, Eva, a lump of being. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we, we actually checked your translation. Um, you went for a science klumpen. Yeah. <laughs> science klumpen. And it's such a weird, I mean, it's a sort of funny phrase, a lump of being. I think even in English, we think, I, yeah, I feel a bit like a lump of being after having a rich din dinner or something like yeah. that. And we, we had to... Yeah, to think about also being is, of course, always a difficult thing to translate. And we, in the end, went for um, um, substance <laughs> because we, although it has these Aristotelian connotations, we still felt it was better to do that than something like, um, yeah, I know we had, we had different alternatives, but we never forgot about the conversations about a lump of being. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, well, the other thing was that working line by line and then um, in Glasgow where Hannah was at the time and I was in Amsterdam at some point we just had to also sit back and read the whole thing again you say what are we talking about we're now sort of focusing on the details but then you okay let's let me read the whole essay again and keep keeping an eye on the text as a whole that was uh, mm -hmm. utterly important if I can just jump in, um, just yeah, because you mentioned the, the title of the book, because I had originally proposed to Zorkam a different title, not um, wholly different, but I wanted Hoheit des Guten, which I thought was really capturing the idea much better, because in German, souveränität, sovereignty, you say, um, you know, about when, when something comes easy to you or you do something with ease, then you do it in a souverain mm. manner, you know? It's like, um, you know, the classy, easygoing style. And I thought that's completely the wrong association to have. And I'm not sure if some people might have that when they read about uh, die Souveränität des Guten, that the good just comes easy, you know? It's sort of easygoing. <laughs> that is exactly not the <laughs> message of the book, right? right. It's not the opposite. Sure. Yeah, so, but they were then in, um, insisting on the recognizability that it should sound uh, more like the English original. So that's interesting that your Dutch publishers were a bit more liberal there. Well, but it, it is a good point, Eva, because, well, there, there is a newer translation of, uh, of Murdoch's um, Sovereignty of Good in, in Dutch, a recent mm -hmm. one. And um, it turned out that it seemed to be difficult to find our publication as the translation of the original text. Oh, see, yeah. so you see what I mean? So it, it might also lead to confusion. Um, mm. And that new translation that is uh, sort of refreshing, um, well, I would say more in, in sort of pop, somewhat popular tone, um, has the original title. So for reasons of, of being recognizable as mm. that Murdoch text, and that makes sense, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Marietta, I was going to ask you about the the new translation that's just come out. I mean, it, it's great, obviously, to to have uh, more material. But do do you think, uh, not that we need to be um, critical at all, but do you, do you think it's um, giving a kind of a, a different kind of take on Murdoch's on Murdoch's work? Yeah, I think it does. I I I, I should indeed say I think it's. Um, very important to have more translations. And it's also a sign of the importance of Murdoch. Well, think of, of Plato, Aristotle. We keep having new translations of those big thinkers. And it's it's uh, a way to to yeah, to revise thoughts, maybe. Um, 
of course, self-indulgent as we are, we feel our translation is better, but that's more, maybe more being, being attached to your own work than something that we can, can really judge. But I would say that the, the translation is freer than our translation. And that's also a decision. You have to decide on, do we want to find Murdoch's voice or do we want to make it accessible as philosophy in the in the twenties of the, of the twenty first century, and and that that's just a different way of going about. So, and and I, I, yeah, I think it's good. And there's new attention now for Murdoch also because of this translation. And I should also add that um, the translator Combe started a new series, uh, The Ultima, and offered to publish our translation of the Fire and the Sun in his series. So there's reason to be uh, to be grateful there. Although we have some different thoughts on how to translate Murdoch, it's maybe it's part of the part of the game. Yeah, of course, and it's always good to be collegial and in in and uh, in doing these things. Could you say a little bit about the, your recent work on the Fire and the Sun? Um, obviously, that may for some people uh, listening to the podcast that won't be. Um, as familiar at all as the sovereignty of good, it's, it, it is obviously included in the um, uh, Existentialist and Mystics collection. It is also available as a separate work, but it's probably yeah. perhaps it is a bit of a, um, a, le a lesser. I think probably we'd all agree it's a lesser known work for Murdoch's. Um, what inspired mm -hmm. you to take on the Fire and the Sun together with Hannah, and 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 how's it going? Yeah, um, it's going very slowly. It's a slow. <laughs> it's a slow. <laughs> um, well, we both thought, I don't know exactly how it started. That's weird because that's not too long ago. But we, well, we read the text and we, we of course, know um, Murdoch's work, I think. And we thought, oh, there's so many interesting things there. It's, of course, a sort of close reading of Plato. And in translating it, it's another close reading of us, close reading Murdoch on close reading Plato. And there's a lot of references to Plato and that might make it sort of less attractive. But there are so many, I would say, um, deep thoughts there about the artists, about metaphysics in general, about religion, that we thought, well, let's do the work again. And we're also now aiming for somewhat longer essays uh, alongside to include in the volume alongside the translation. Um, but I also personally think or think we, that the way she uh, reflects on Plato, and for me that maybe is especially interesting with an eye on Simone Weil, because it seems that it was especially Weil that inspired her to come closer to Plato and to work to more mm. work on Plato. And I would just like to unravel this better. And I, I think it's it's a very important text in um, Murdoch's development. Yeah. The pub so the, the works have both been works have both been published, obviously. Um Marissa, how how was the um, how was your translation received? Did it um did it get reviewed? Did people were people buying it? Were people talking to you about it? Did it start a, a kind of the beginnings of a revolution in Murdoch's study in Holland? <laughs> well, I don't think it, it, it was the start of a revolution. Um, there, there were a couple of reviews, positive reviews. That was really nice. Um, and maybe I should tell, tell in, in 2003, when it got published, we had um, a, a nice book publication where um, uh, Hannah and I decided to do a kind of 
fictional conversation. We told the audience there were 30, 40 persons there at FU University. We told them that we had found a, a recording in an archive of a conversation at the dinner table, including Murdoch, Bailey and friends. And that we had for the occasion translated that into Dutch. Um, and that was amazing. We think back of it. I think we could only have written such a dialogue, a conversation, because we were so um, we we were so familiar with Murdoch's world through working on it for three years, and the whole uh, everyone in the audience believed that it was a real conversation. And I remember one of the professors coming up to us and saying, "Oh, the level of the conversations." Um, at the time, it's wonderful. People do no longer talk like this. <laughs> and the only person who was, I remember her sort of smile, that was uh, um, Edith Brugmans, yeah. a, a Murdoch scholar. She knew from the start that it was, well, there was not a presupposition. Uh, uh, um, it was not a, we would not be using the word fake at the time, but she knew that it was a, <laughs> a fake conversation. And people, some of the people felt betrayed afterwards when they found out that we made the whole thing up. But that was um, part of the, <laughs> of the of the joy because people were talking about that conversation. Um, but overall, I think it was the start of a bit of Murdoch scholarship, just making it available. But it was not like a revolution um, that everyone was talking about it. But I, I think we... To, to go back to the notion of voice, that we gave Murdoch a voice in the philosophical landscape through that translation. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you'd um, produce that piece of, well, what would maybe now be called performance art, I suppose, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a performance art kind of thing. Yeah, I yeah. think the word fake doesn't really capture the, the doesn't sound like <laughs> the essence of it at all. Uh, was, it, was that ever published or did you ever do anything with it after you'd, you'd used it in performance? No, no, and maybe we should. I'm. Um, there was a person coming to me a, a year ago or so and said, "Oh, I know you from this uh, conversation on uh, on Murdoch." And it was we had such fun finding out afterwards that it was uh, it was performing arts, which you didn't you didn't use that phrase. No, maybe we should go back to it or. Uh, I think, I think you should. I'd love that. You're interested. Yeah, I am interested. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening <laughs> okay. who would also be interested. So yeah, let's. We'll be in touch. <laughs> we'll be in touch about okay. that. Okay. Sounds, <laughs> sounds fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Eve, obviously, yours has only just come out in uh, just just published in July. Um, so it's perhaps you know fresher, and you're still getting reviews and and notices about um, book sales and things. How's it been? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's going well. Uh, so just this morning, I received an email from the publisher, actually. I was really happy that um, it had made a top 10 list of uh, nonfiction books, uh, like a best book list, it's called, on the uh, German journal called The Zeit, and also the ZDF, I think, in Deutschland von Kultur, like a big radio station. So um, it's number five on that list in October, wow. uh, which is really great. <laughs> And he was also yeah. pleased with the sales. Yeah, so it seems to be going well. And there were a few other reviews, one short piece on Deutschlandfunk Kultur, like a radio review. And the Süddeutsche, which is a big German newspaper, had a, a fairly big review. And so that's that's just really wonderful. But also what, what I realized reading these reviews, because I wrote a Nachwort, you know, to the translation. So I did translate the Mary Midgley introduction, 
So I couldn't write another introduction, but I wrote like something like an afterword, which is basically a bit like an introduction, yeah. about just like giving some context. And um, and I realized reading these reviews, um, what an influence in a way I have as a translator and especially writing this sort of afterward because people were using then my words to describe her work and that scared me a little bit right it's like oh I had I'm not sure if I should have been more aware of this writing the afterward um because just reading the, the reviews I'm not sure if this has happened to you Marietta or if that's a general thing but you realize okay these well you know that they're missing a point here they haven't quite understood what this is about there um, and then you begin to wonder whether is this my fault? Should I have made things clearer? Should I have written something else in the Nachwort? Was something misleading that I said there? Uh, so that's that was something that I hadn't reckoned with. Um, this sort of yeah power. Yeah, you, you become the national. Was... You become the national champion. Yeah, <laughs> I guess in your, in your respective languages, I suppose, which is quite a, a task to take on. Yeah, and I really wasn't aware of it. And um, I just want her to be read. I want her voice. I don't want to be like the major interpreter or whatever, right? But so obviously people who are reviewing the book will then read the introduction and the afterword and kind of take it from there, you know, to make their lives easier. And if, yeah, but that's but that, that's, a, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? On one hand, you know that you are you know that the, the you have the power over the over the translation and we talked a little bit about the you know technical terminology the way in which dealing with class and language and you know you are ultimately the, the final arbiter of how that's going to work but also you want to kind of disappear into the background and yeah. kind of and not and to kind of be you know behind the curtain as it were yeah yeah that's i mean a, i do want to be right i do want to disappear i do i absolutely do want to disappear <laughs> i just want, i don't want to be on the stage at all and uh, i'm a bit uncomfortable when I then read my own words from the this afterward in these uh, reviews so I feel like no just just read the main text and try to understand that and just I just wanted to contextualize a little bit that's all but really go to the main work yeah but yeah anyway so it's I mean maybe it is nice as well to be recognized as a sort of voice there in between but I I don't know that was not my intention for sure Marietta, did you ever feel um, have those kind of feelings or kind of worry about the, your kind of um, your your personality in a sense coming through in in Murdoch's writing, Murdoch's, the translation of Murdoch's writing? Yeah, um, well, I think I feel the same as you, Eva. You, it, you wanted to be about the content of of what was translated, not so much about your own thoughts behind it. Yeah. Um, but I. Well, what I what I was thinking of, somewhat related to what you were saying, Eva, is um, I think it's very important that we also have the background in 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 reading other works by Murdoch. Um, and yeah, that's not that's not directly a, a response to where we are as translators, but maybe it is because I think it makes us it makes it. Um, possible to be more at the background than when you're not mm -hmm. an, a Murdoch scholar. <laughs> I see, so yeah. reading a lot of Murdoch and think, okay, I want to, yeah, I want to do sort of honor to her th thoughts yeah. and not necessarily honor to who I am. And it's sometimes difficult because you, we have our own styles and our own thoughts. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's important that we know that we 
try to know what we're writing about, <laughs> what we're translating. And it's not merely translating, it's thinking of the oeuvre, it's thinking, yeah, I'm also thinking of her novels, recognizing certain thoughts and then try to maybe disappear behind the translation. Mm -hmm. But it's such a difficult task, isn't it? And one that you, you can't enter into lightly. Ava, has the, the process put you off translation or do you think you might take on some more? And if so, would it be translating Murdoch or translating somebody else from the quartet or something completely different? I'm not sure about somebody completely different. I'd, def I'd love to do a more Murdoch because that, I mean, it's been wonderful. I remember when I started out and I got in touch with you and whether you had any sort of advice or tips and you put me in touch with Hannah to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then Hannah said to me, ah, oh, yeah, translating the Sovereignty of Good. I don't know if you can uh, would agree to this, Marietta, but Hannah said it was the best thing she's ever done. And I remember mm -hmm. being quite taken aback by this. Like, oh, really? Because I thought of it as a sort of necessity. <laughs> Somebody has to do this job, you know, and, and I'll do it. But I just wanted to make it accessible. I hadn't thought of it uh, as a very rewarding thing to do. But I would absolutely agree with Hannah now. It's been so wonderful that process of translating her but of course it is basically my favorite book right that I translated and that <laughs> is a massive privilege uh, and also it's a, a joy because I love it so much and I'm not sure how great translating is when you don't love the work so much that you have to bring into your own language so I'm sure one thing I'm thinking about maybe at some point would be like a little essay collection that's one of Anscombe's essays as well that are that have appeared in, in Zurkamp as well, uh, or maybe The Fire and the Sun, we'll see. I can definitely see myself doing that, or maybe, maybe other women of the quartet as well, but I don't think I would go into translation as a sort of full-time job just translating anything. I'm not sure. <laughs> Keep a more varied uh, profile, mm. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I may, I, I, I agree with Hannah. It was definitely one of the best things in terms of academic career and there are other <laughs> valuable things of course to um, to translate and of course it depends on what you translate but there's something it seems of of almost intrinsic value in translating it is about those lines those words this specific text and maybe also in the context of um, of other academic work, work where there's so much to arrange and administrative things and Excel sheets and, and what have we, where here you think, oh, this is what we're doing. It it, it, it was a wonderful experience. Um, but of course, it depends on the text. I, I agree with that. Of course. It, it's, it's wonderful to, to hear that you've both had such great experiences in, in doing that and that it's been useful you know not just to yourselves but also of course to to many many other readers and philosophers although i i, I don't hear either of you um offering to translate metaphysics the guide to morals but um perhaps well. that's un perhaps that's understandable <laughs> somebody will at some point I'm yeah sure. no, but but i think somebody should do that at some point it would be but it would be a, a 10 years thing to do um, yeah no, I, I think yeah well, it took Murdoch ten years to write, didn't it? Or get it ready, get it up to publication. Okay, so only fair. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and clearly, if there's anybody listening to this uh, podcast and you want to get in touch about um, translating Murdoch, um, I'm sure Ava or Marietta would be very happy to to speak to people and uh, invite them. Absolutely great. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been it's been wonderful to have you both on. Thank you so much for for um, your time today and, and talking about the translations. Um, I'll make um, links to both of them available so that people can um, have a look and, of course, buy them. 
um, especially for those people who are listening, who have, um, have the, uh, the linguistic ability to uh, to access your translations. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure that um, we will um, be back speaking again uh, together, Marietta, when once um, Fire on the Sun is is ready and uh, and published. And Ava, I'm, I do hope you'll come back on again and and talk about your work with um, Vey and with Murdoch, and, uh, and no doubt with the other other thinkers that you're using with your project on virtue ethics. So my thanks to Ava Maria and to uh, Marietta for joining me today, and my thanks to you all for listening.